welcome back to Pineapple Reels. As usual, I'm your host, Nia, and on today's episode, I'll be talking about Nightmare Alley, which came out in December 2021, and it was written and directed by Guillermo del Toro and Kim Morgan. Stay tuned. Nightmare Alley is a wonderful movie that spans over two hours and 30 minutes and it's actually based on a novel written by William Lindsay Gresham and that novel came out in the late 40s and there's also another movie called Nightmare Alley that came out in 1947 but Guillermo del Toro did say that his rendition of the film is not a remake of the first film, it's more so of his own telling of the novel that he read. The plot for Nightmare Alley is as follows. An ambitious carny with a talent for manipulating people with a few well-chosen words hooks up with a female psychiatrist who is even more dangerous than he is. Now, Nightmare Alley is a crime dramatic thriller or whether I say a dramatic crime thriller, it definitely keeps you on your toes. Um, Without ruining it, I really appreciate the pace. I think that Bradley Cooper had a phenomenal performance. He really just brought this character to life. Um, Kate Blanchett, as usual, she did a really good job in her role as a psychiatrist. We had Tony Collette as Zena the Seer, William Defoe as um, Clem Holtley, Richard Jenkins, who plays Ezra Grindle, Rooney Mara, she plays Molly Cahill, who is uh, Bradley Cooper's love interest in the film. Uh, we also have Ron Perlmel, who plays Bruno, who is like a, a strongman of sorts. Um, Mary Steenbergen, who plays Mrs. Kimball, which is a, a small feature role. And she has some lines in it. And I, I more so know her from like Set Brothers and other projects. And we also have uh, David Stratham. He plays Pete. So as usual, obviously right now, warning, full disclosure, spoilers ahead. If you have not seen Nightmare Alley and you want to see it, by all means, don't listen to this podcast. Go watch it. Come back and see what you thought, what you thought about it. Um, I watched it uh, a few days after it premiered. I the trailer has had captivated me from the moment I saw it, and I have this really deep appreciation for like circuses and carnivals and all that. So it's always interested me. As a young child, I used to go to carnivals and circuses a lot. My dad used to take me all the time. Um, and I, whenever there is a film or TV show that is trying to emulate this carny life, I, I think I hold a, a, a magnifying glass to it because I really hope that they are as authentic as can be. And what I really appreciate about this film was it is very clear that you can see that the research was done like from the sets to the lighting to the tone the vernacular that was used um hairstyles uh, jewelry um the type of guns like it was just really nice of how detailed Guillermo really tried to make this set as detailed as possible so it really feels like you are 
teleported to this time period. It felt like from beginning to end that I was literally in the year 1947. So let's get into this opening scene, shall we? In the opening scene, we see a man bearing a body beneath the floorboards of a home. And later we see that he burns it down and he's walking away without looking back. And I'm going to stop right there because to me, the fact that he doesn't look back is telling to the character of who he is. So being someone who watches movies so often, seeing that, I'm thinking, okay, clearly whatever happened here, he has no intention of ever thinking about it again or talking about it for whatever reason so be it and i like that this the movie started off kind of like hmm like why who's this dead body because we don't see the, the body we don't know if it's a man or a woman you know who's this person hiding the body why are you bringing the house like what's going what led up to this you know and we don't get the answer to that until much later and i would being the, the person the kind of movie goer i am i'm I, I was just trying early on to try to make it make sense like, okay like, who could that possibly have been um, I guessed it a, a tad early on, but I wasn't exactly for sure of my hunch until a little bit later. We will later recognize the man that we saw earlier as Stanton Carlisle, played by Bradley Cooper. And with only a watch on his wrist and a radio underneath his arm, he comes across a carnival, a circus of sorts. And he's desperate for a job. And he joins the carnival, making a wage of a dollar doing grunt work and even when it comes time for payday Clem played by William Defoe shorts it about 25 cents because previously he snuck in to watch uh, a geek show and the price was 25 cents and he avoided paying for it but William Defoe's character saw him and charged him later like no you didn't slip by me I see everything this is the first time we see Stanton try to trick or con someone and we need to really pay attention to when he tricks or cons someone because he's very good at it and as the film progresses we see just how good he gets at this in my opinion talent that he has also from his conversation with Clem we learned that he doesn't indulge in spirits much to Clem's surprise and Stanton says that he never drinks as it's not his thing uh, one of Stanton's jobs is, is uh, attending to the geek. And if you don't know what a geek is, it's not, you know, some point dexter with glasses and a pocket protector and is really good at math. A geek in carny terms refers to the freak show's bloodiest performers. Now, it's usually normal people performing abnormal behaviors such as biting their heads off of chickens, as we see in detail within the film. The term was popularized by the novel of the same name, Nightmare Alley, by William Lindsay Gresham in 1946. Commonly, they didn't work for money, but food, liquor, and their drug of choice to feed their addiction. And Clem tells Staten, hey, to get rid of the geek, you know, because he needs, he needs to go because he's become sick. And Stanton, when he goes to help him, he's clearly disgusted by just the mere smell and appearance of the geek. And he cannot fathom being in his shoes at the bottom of the barrel, even going as far as to brutally hit, hurting this man. Like he, he he's hitting him, kicking him, really hurting him. And him and Clem end up dropping him off at a hospital. They don't stay to make sure he's okay. They drop him off and they, they leave. And Clem says, hey, they'll, 
they'll fix him up it's fine and during the scene that they're helping him they're helping the geek out of the car and drop him off from the hospital there is a illuminated sign uh, illuminated neon sign with red lettering and it's a white cross and it says Jesus it's supposed to say Jesus saves but a lot of the letters are out and the only letters that actually remains if you actually put it up into a, sen- a sentence of sorts the only words you can make out really is save us which obviously is some foreshadowing and I saw that I'm like hmm why did the director do this obviously you know he's trying to help us understand the story and on the second watch if you do watch it in time it's cool to see those little things like pop out now clem even further explains that he seeks out alcoholics drug addicts men with troubled past and cons them with a promise of a job and a shot of liquor and what's in that liquor it's laced with opium and their downfall eventually benefits him financially as they become his new geek. Which is, it's good that we we understand this because now we're realizing how Clem is able to get these people. He gets someone they're at rock bottom and they don't really have many options. And he, you know, obviously capitalizes off of that. He's an opportunist, but he's very transparent with uh, Stan about how about how he goes about his stuff. Clem also shows Stanton where he stores his collection of moonshine as all the carnies like to get their fix. He gives them a sharp warning to not mistake the wood alcohol he stores close by for liquor. Soon after this encounter, we will see how this small moment, literally a scene that lasted a few seconds, was a dash of beautiful foreshadowing. In all the carny clairvoyant Madame Zena and Pete, her talented yet alcoholic older husband. Like most of the carnival acts, the duo are running a con of sorts. Madame Zena, played by Tony Collette, and Pete aren't truly clairvoyant or psychic. Rather, they, you know, they make their deductions by analyzing guests. They use cold reading and a coded language that they made up on their own to be able to efficiently win over crowds. So they're mentalists. Um, there is a popular mentalist uh, from England called Darren Brown. If you've never heard of him, look him up on YouTube. A few of my, my uh, British friends told me about him. And he does amazing work where you would think, you know, he, he, seeing a movie like this, you're like, how does people fall for this con? If you watch a Darren Brown, Brown special or episode, just, just, one, just one interaction he has you will see how easy it is for people to get comfortable and believe a stranger's words when they're just making too much sense. And I believe they even say in the movie where like basically people want to be read. People want people want you to figure them out. You know, people feel like they're so complex of character. So when you sit there and you tell them about themselves, they're usually very shocked. Like, oh, you don't really know me yet. You know, you know all this information about me. Oh, you, you must be psychic. It's like, no, I'm putting together things about like how you tie your shoes and how worn your shoes are or the type of clothing you wear or your mannerisms or how you may sit up right properly or maybe how you may hunch over like you're trying to hide your body there are these little things and even micro expressions that mentalists are looking at to make their usually 100 percent accurate assumptions 
the start of something new. Stan is extremely intrigued by Pete and Dina's act, and when he watches them, he is in awe and desperately wants to learn the secret to their methods. Pete gives Stan a few lessons, but he and Dina warn him to not use these newly taught skills for personal gain when it comes to a patron's dead loved ones. They don't give him details, but one can assume why wouldn't it be okay to continue to deceive them? And that's a question that the audience may ask a couple of times before the, sh the movie really shows you why you don't mess with people in such a vulnerable state of mind. Zena and Pete give a stern warning to never, I repeat, never do the spook show. And I 100% agree. And later on, we, the audience, get to see why that warning was given with a heavy heart. The doer are not heartless as they inform the guests who come to them in private that the show is deception. Stan has his eyes on one of the performers named Molly, who has an act that involves her being electrocuted. And Molly is played by Rooney Mara. As a way to get her, as a way to get to her, Stan creates a new act for her to help her gain more attention. Eventually, he approaches her with a two-person act featuring her and himself away from the carnival and in the city. Now, Ron Perlman, who plays the strongman, he, you know, he's like a protector of Molly. And he is obviously very concerned of who's this swift guy who just busting in here. We don't know anything about him. For all we know, he's telling us a lie. And he wants to take Molly. I'm not having it. No. Uh, one night, an already drunk Pete asked Stan to hand him another bottle of liquor. And though Stan is hesitant and actually looks a little bit irritated, he eventually gives in and gives Pete a bottle. Stan tries to take a small handwritten notebook from Pete's pocket while he was passed out drunk before. And when he awakens, he grabs him by the hand, upset that he would try to do such a thing. And that little book that he carries in his pocket contains all the secrets to his and Zena's act. After Stan gives Pete the liquor, later on word gets on that Pete is dead and no one suspects anything as he's a known drunk. But the timing of it all, way too coincidental. And again, no one suspects a thing. He's able to pass by without any suspicion. Before Pete's death, let me backtrack because I forgot this part. Before Pete died, there was a situation where the sheriff comes into the, to the carnival and he's like, I'm going to shut all this stuff down. This is an abomination. He even tells Maya, like, you're, you're dressed scantily clad. Like, how do you think that makes, you know, little girls feel? Like, you know, are you proud of yourself? And, um seeing that you know this is all about to be over Sam's like I can't have this happen like I'm making moves so he interrupts the sheriff and he uses a little mentalism skills that he has learned from Pete and Zena observing them and what what they've told him and he's able to convince this police officer that he understands his background and all that kind of stuff and the sheriff backs off and lets and allows them to continue their show and again here's another step that we're seeing of you know how well of a con man Stan really is. He's pretty damn good. And he's not pushy. So it makes it even more believable with this person. Like, oh, why would they? They're not trying to con me. They're trying to help me out of a situation. They see I'm hurting 
or they just want to help me. And that's how he gets it. He's a handsome, calm man with a nice smile and a slick draw, and it really captivates audience. After Pete's death, Stan and Molly leave for the big city with their new act in tow, and Molly says goodbye to her family. We cut to two years later and see the two are putting on a show with Stan having the stage name The Great Stanton and performs as a psychic for the wealthy and who's who of Chicago. They use Xena and Pete's techniques to wow audiences. And during a performance, an audience goer tries to test Stan's abilities, even loudly telling the audience she thinks Stan and Molly are using a secret coded language to fool everyone. She demands that he guess what's in her small purse and that Molly must remain silent to prove his skills. Now Molly looks startled, but Stan is calm. And Stan's able to guess correctly saying that it's a gun in her purse, even down to its physical description. Later on, we will learn her name is Dr. Lilith Ritter, a psychologist played by Kate Blanchett. After their performance, when they're back in the room, he scolds Molly for not remembering the code and almost getting them caught. And, you know, Molly feels bad. She's saying sorry. She's got, you know, clammed up. But he keeps on stressing, like, we don't we don't have that luxury of messing up. Like, you got to get it together. You got to remember it. And I think because he's so passionate about it, and this is all that he has, he studied this material back and front, you know, work hand in hand with Pete and Zena. So he's like, if I got this, how do you not got this? And here we are two years later, you got to get on the ball. There's a wealthy judge that uh, approaches Stan with an offer. And we learn he was the one who sent Dr. Ritter to test him. And now truly believing in him, he offers a large amount to let him and his wife be able to contact their dead son. Molly does not want to do the spook show. And Stan seemingly agrees, but greed is clearly on his mind. And the psychologist, she can pick up on this as she thinks he's a skilled con man that has so many fooled, you know, a master manipulator. And Stan is, Stan is a very, very good manipulator. He's able to convince a lot of people. Now, while while he's at the psychologist's office, she tells Stan, even shows him that she records all of her sessions with her clients in her office. And she has dark secrets regarding Chicago's elite and wealthy. With her help, Stan gains the information needed to proceed with the quote-unquote spook show the judge requested. Now at this time, she asks for Stan to tell her his story unfiltered and true. And he agrees. Now, when she offers offers him a drink, he declines, even saying, no, thank you, I don't drink. And she points out that by his phrasing, he has a sense of pride about himself for not indulging in liquor. He tells her his dad was a drunk and he has no intentions of following his hollow footsteps. In his therapy sessions with Dr. Ritter, Stan tells her about his hatred of his father who cared more about alcohol than his family and guilt over his mentor Pete's death. After helping Harrington, he's introduced to a wealthy man by the name of Ezra Grindle. And I want to exaggerate that this man is extremely wealthy. He lives in a mansion, has his own personal bodyguard as well. Now, 
the bodyguard is very loyal and devoted to Mr. Grindle, and he enlists to help a stand as he needs to contact a past lover of his. Again, he's doing the spook show as it pays very well, and he tr- he doesn't truly want to turn down the money. Uh, Dr. Ritter gives Stan a warning that dealing with Grindle is serious and can be dangerous, deadly dangerous even. It's a stern, it's stern but kind of vice that he clearly ignores. So it seems like with Stan, whenever he gets warnings or, you know, just like some advice, whether it's good or bad, asked for or not, he doesn't really heed warnings. It's like he thinks he's invincible. And the more popularity he gains, the more money he gets, it's as if there is no glass ceiling. There, there, there is not a limit. It's around this time we see Stan start to slip and descend into his own personal fiery inferno. He's cheating on Molly with Dr. Ritter, consuming liquor all of a sudden, and lying excessively. Molly is not okay with the spook show that he wants to do, and especially him knowing that he's been cheating on her. She leaves him because of this, but agrees to help him one last time with his scam. Now, in this last act, we see that Judge Kimball from earlier and his wife are enjoying a lovely afternoon together. And his wife, Mrs. Kimball, asks him, you know, does he, you know, miss their son or wish to be with them? But she obviously agrees, not knowing anything of her plan. And I didn't see this, I did not see this movie by myself. I saw it with someone. And he uh, he kept saying like uh you know why what's the big deal for a spook show you know why can't someone do the spook show and obviously we're in a theater i can't really have a full-blown conversation especially when i go to alamo draft house you can't talk while you're in the theater um and i was like i'll tell you later it's just it's just not a good thing so when they first said in the beginning of the movie i was like oh yeah you never do that because it has dire consequences and maybe in the beginning they should have elaborated to stand why you don't do it like they 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 allude to it but they didn't really go into detail about the dire consequences and mrs kimball she pulls out a gun and shoots her husband and then sally turns it on herself as well they don't show if Stan and or Molly know what happened to the judge and his wife. Um, it seems like the next turn of events happens that same day and word hasn't got out yet about what happened. But, you know, obviously, this is why you don't do the spook show. Now, there was a part um, in the movie when Stan was still at the carnival that he met where he met Molly at. And Zena did a reading uh, with tarot cards. And the card that she did for him, uh, it was the Hanged Man tarot card, which means, um, you know, whenever it's flipped, it, it means a certain thing. And so she was telling Stan, like, hey, you need to be careful because something's going to happen. And so he doesn't really take tarot reading seriously all he does is turn the card upside down and says well look at that i just changed my luck and gives a little smirk and xena has a face of just like despair and i know a little bit about tarot reading but um someone else i know they they told me they're like that card if you personally flip it around it means the exact opposite of what's going to happen 
So him saying, I just, I just changed my fate, everything's fine. Everything would have been fine in the, you know, world of tarot if he would have left the damn card alone. But he didn't. And I think that alludes to he has this deep fixation or just this strong thought process, probably his ego thinking, I am con in control of my life and my destiny. Nothing else, no one else. It's my choice whenever I do certain things. Meanwhile, Stan and Molly prep for the night's show for Ezra. Now, since he wants Stan to somehow materialize his illegitimate lover that, um, you know, he needs to see, uh, Stan convinces Molly to be able to, to do it, to, to portray her. And Molly's like, I don't look like her. He's like, it doesn't matter. Okay, you're going to be far away. He's not going to, you know, really see your face like that or touch it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Just for show. And, um, you know, Molly clearly seems not okay with that and uneasy, but she agrees to, like I said, she agrees to help Stan with this. So when Ezra, uh, Ezra and uh, Stanton are out and they're uh, in his garden, <laughs> his garden at his mansion, he was his bodyguard and says, like, can you like get your bodyguard, like back up off us? Like, you know, we need this personal time to ourselves. And the bodyguard does he falls back and you know he's like okay i'll be here if you need me and walks away and um when ezra sees who he thinks is dory before his eyes he is shocked and astonished and he he's in such like in such shock that he keeps walking closer to her despite stan trying to physically hold him back and verbally holding him back and Ezra breaks free and grabs Molly and confesses to her who he thinks this is, you know, Dory, who he did some wrongdoing to because he um, she died from a from a a, a botched abortion. Um, but he breaks free of Stan, of Stan's grip, grabs Molly, he's confessing to her the wrongdoings of being physically abusive to multiple women over the years and that the death of Dory has left him feeling guilty now when we're when you're we're, when we're in this scene and we're it, it's all happening very quickly and for me it was like I was I was like having I don't know like an anxiety moment because it was just like I feel like I know it's gonna happen I'm just kind of like ah how's it gonna turn out kind of deal and um it was just kind of it was just wild but it was so it was such a good scene um, but I love that, you know, you're thinking that here's this guy who, you know, this extremely wealthy man who maybe lost touch or contact with the lover and she passed or he feels guilty for doing, making her do something that she maybe shouldn't have done or, you know, it's his fault or whatever the case may be. But in reality, he's an asshole. He is an abusive asshole that, you know, got this woman killed for his own selfish means you know because it's his illegitimate lover you can't have my child because it's gonna look bad on me so you need to get an abortion figure it out and then she dies in childbirth and he feels guilty for it you should feel guilty it's your fault that all this happened so um after this confession and seeing up close that this woman molly doesn't look like dory and uh stanton yelling at him like hey unhand her as realizes Oh my God, you like, you, you played me. You, you showed me along and you lied to me this entire time. 
So Ezra's feeling this deep betrayal. No, he's not friends with Stan, but he's so used to people lying and plotting and conning him that he can't believe that he let it get this far. So he feels he feels stupid. He feels stupid and he feels manipulated. And uh, he violently threatens Stan. And upon hearing the commotion, his bodyguard Anderson runs to help. And Stan is, ends up killing Ezra and the bodyguard Anderson in order for him and Molly to get away. And with all the craziness happening, Molly finally leaves Stan for good. And he ends up going to Dr. Ritter's office to ask for help um, and to get his money because for whatever reason, he thought, oh, I can trust this woman I don't know to hold the money that I'm getting because I don't want Molly to, to know what I've been doing and how much money I've been getting from this man. So he left it with Dr. Ritter for literally safekeeping in her safe. I, oh God, the irony. So, you know, it's here where Sienna realizes that Dr. Ritter was conning the con man that he is, but he was too smug to realize it. He got too comfortable around her. Dr. Ritter recorded all of their conversations, or rather sessions, and the money he did have, well, now it's gone, as she has taken that too. She even tells him that she's disappointed that he's not better at being a criminal, as she thought he may have been different. There's a scene where um, Dr. Ritter is telling him that she has some kind of surgery, and um, she opens her dress to show him this deep scar that she has from the middle of her chest down to like her abdomen. And this is a moment of vulnerability. You know, maybe, you know, you, you talk to this person, tell him I'm here for you, I'm glad you're okay. But not what he did. Stan sexualized her in this moment. Here this woman is being vulnerable, being like, oh, look at this side of me. You know, it's really hard to deal with. And he, he decides... I'm going to make you feel good about it by kissing your scars and then screwing you. And you can even see it in her face in that scene when that happened. Like, he he doesn't get it. He, he's not getting it. I know now that he's not who I'm wanting him to be. He's like all the others. He's just a little bit better than the predecessors that I've, I've met. Stan tries to attack Dr. Ritter, but she's already called the police, who he can hear are rapidly approaching and she tells him, if you try to kill me or put blame on me, I will turn over all these recordings as evidence and they'll, they'll be able to, to, to get it. So what is he supposed to do in this moment? Is he supposed to stay and kill her and, and, and try to figure things out? Or does he run? And or does he just face the consequences? Now, we all we, we clearly could tell from this film, Stan is not the person to own up to his actions or admit fault or take blame. So, um even like in the middle of their uh argument she shoots him and he runs wounded and wanted by authorities stan flees he hops on a train while he's running away from the cops and he hopes for the best and luckily he's able to get out of there uh without getting caught and we cut to you know homelessness stan wanders around for a while as he has no place to go no friends, no family, no money, and now has become a full-blown a full alcoholic. And on his journey, he finds a carnival. At first, when he asks the owner for a job, he's turned away. But as he's about to walk, walk out the door, the guy offers Stan a drink. And he tells him that he has a job that he could do on a temporary basis. 
has the new geek. He even has some, you ever heard of a geek? And Stan pauses, kind of like, damn, I know exactly what you're about to tell me. We see a truly broken and ego-bruised Stan agree through dirty and plaque-ridden teeth. And he says, mister, I was born for it. Then he laughs and it quickly turns into deep sobs and the movie ends. Okay, so now that we all know the base of the film, like I said, this movie was amazing for me. So I saw a lot of movies the last month of 2021 and I saw Major Resurrections. I saw Spider-Man uh, No Way Home. I saw Nightmare Alley. I'm seeing Macbeth and like, a couple hours tonight um and for me in 2021 i feel like the best movie i saw was nightmare alley and i was like wow so we're closing up the year strong because i saw spider-man i was like oh this is great because i love spider-man and it was awesome and then i saw nightmare alley obviously complete opposite genre and all that kind of stuff and I was blown away about of, of how amazing it was. And I didn't automatically guess every single thing that happened. Uh, I got truly teleported into a world. I, I like that. I like being so immersed in a movie that by the time it's over, I don't really realize it until like the theater lights are coming on or until the credits roll. And I feel like Bradley Cooper he's been on the up and up like the last few years the role not few years but last like five six years the roles that he he has been taking on are these very strong characters um they show his acting abilities and his range and he's not a monolith he's not just a pretty face he's a serious really good actor and he has this very strong catalog of work you know, and I, I really appreciated this that now this film is added into his catalog. I'm used to seeing a performance like this from like Kate Blanchett or Tony Collette or William Defoe. These people are known for that. But I don't know the switch that either Bradley Cooper decided to make or that his agent decided decided to make. But it's been a it was a really good choice no matter whose decision it was because it, it shows on screen that either he already had this ability and he didn't get the opportunity or he really like sat down and worked on his craft hard and observed other uh actors that are well known that he's worked with uh to you know just get better and I think it's just on the up enough for him I'm like I don't really see any movie he's in tanking you know um but yeah it's like get a little bit deeper into like some of this movie i want to start with the uh deadly sins Alrighty, the seven deadly sins which are also known as the capital vice or cardinal sins and it's usually associated with christian teaching though they're not technically mentioned in the bible um but they are behaviors that are uh, classified in these categories and you know we all know what these what they are um, so it's pride, greed, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, and sloth. And what I feel about this film is that we basically, we basically see all of these sins performed by our lead person. And I feel like obviously the pride, the pride was with the whole, I don't drink alcohol or he thinks higher of himself, which is bullshit because he isn't he's not a good man you know realizing that he killed his father 
because his father was just basically kind of like a shitty dad was like okay if you killed your own parent what else would you do you know agreed with with uh ezra with the judge with the show he was doing when he sold pete's book he can't help it like greed is like his greed and pride are his two leading issues um wrath i feel like the wrath kind of was you know whenever he did have these outbursts um of like when he when he you know killed uh ezra and anderson that was wrath he was angry because this person figured out the con just like when dr ritter figured it out but they figured out his con and they were challenging him and he was like i can't have this happen this has to be done we see envy because he was envious of pete he's hell he's envious of molly damn she's like a leading a leading person you know how can i get with her and and make some things shake he was very calculated and smart of how he did it you know lust he has molly this really wonderful woman who really cares for him they had a very organic you know relationship and she truly loves him and he has a dedicated woman though he talks to her in not the best tone sometimes uses the best words with her she's so patient with him and just puts all the blame on herself and he still goes out and cheats on this woman with this woman he just meets the dr ritter um gluttony I would say with him, the gluttony part is the liquor. Whenever he finally starts drinking because he's messing with Dr. Ritter, he's gluttonous with it. He's not the sipping liquor like you would do at a lounge with a friend or something. He's like crazily drinking drinking liquor. And obviously at, towards the end of the film, we see like just how hard his gluttonous liquor induced, like how, how it was his downfall and, and sloth. And sloth is his final low point you're see he's he's considered trash now where no, no one knows who the hell he is no one cares who he is the point is you need a job or you need money or food or something i gotta make sure you, you're, you're taking care of man you don't gotta worry about it um so i just really really appreciate this film like closing out 2021 um I don't expect anything less from this director. Guillermo's a very good director. <laughs> like, most of his movies are are really awesome. Um, so it's not surprising that he's able to pull this out and, you know, help these actors achieve the performance needed. I even read a fact on IMDb that says that uh, the final scene, Guillermo said, I don't care how long it takes, 80 takes, I don't care. This shot has to be perfect. And he said that Bradley Cooper got it correct on the very first try. They never, they only, they only shot the scene one time, and that's the cut that's in the final film. And it's so good, and it feels like you were sitting in the room with him, and that you can like smell how smell him, and you you just feel the grit on his teeth and the despair in his heart. And I was, when I left that movie, I just thought, damn, that was some really good acting amazing writing and an awesome plot and i really appreciate nightmare alley and if you saw it i hope you did too (music) 
Alrighty, folks, it's time for the IMDb trivia portion of this podcast, which is not sponsored by IMDb. I just like talking about the facts. So the first one I saw was that, of all people, Leonardo DiCaprio was originally picked for the lead role. And DiCaprio chose this over projects from Paul Thomas Anderson and Alejandro, um, I don't know how to say this guy's name, Anarito. But when negotiations fell through due to not reaching a financial agreement, DiCaprio opted out, and he was shortly replaced by Bradley Cooper. And ironically enough, Cooper ended up replacing DiCaprio in Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza, which came out a little earlier in 2021. Um, Most of the earlier scenes were filmed... uh, after production suspended during the COVID-19 pandemic and Bradley Cooper actually used his time to lose 15 pounds and appear younger at the beginning of the film. Jennifer Lawrence and Lady Gaga were considered for the role of Molly Cahill. Now learning that I wonder how it would have been different. I had no problem with Bradley Cooper and Mooney, uh, Rooney Mara's chemistry on screen. It, it felt fine. I didn't think, oh, this is not, this isn't believable, or uh, you know, oh, they are horrible together, or like, oh, they're perfect. It, it, it was fine for me. I will say, whenever he was with Jennifer Lawrence in the Silver Lions Playbook, um, I really liked the chemistry that they had on screen together. I really enjoyed it. Um, and with Lady Gaga and uh, I think it's called Star is Born, their chemistry was just like, it was kind of like oh, electric. It was just really, really good and it felt really organic. So I wonder how they would have played in this movie. And I think Jennifer, if, out of the two, I think Jennifer Lawrence would have been really, really good and really, really would have added to the story. But again, I think Rini did an amazing job. tuning into this week's episode of pie Burials. if you want to send me a message uh follow me suggest a movie have a comment or question or just maybe want to have a discussion about a movie or a scene feel free to contact me via instagram it'll be pineapple reels and i will definitely be coming back to cover a few movies spider-man no way from home will definitely be one i've seen this movie kid you not four times y'all four times between december 17th when it came out and literally yesterday um i saw it with my co-workers i saw it with my best friend i saw it with my boyfriend i saw it with my brother i have seen this movie multiple times and funny thing is it, it it literally hasn't got old to me yet i think it's so good the four again four times i've seen this film um i think it was very consistent so i can't wait to deep dive into spider-man i have so many things that i want to talk about i feel like it, no matter how much i like you know write all this information down and research and research and you know cross-reference check and the comics i used to read the comics i read spider-man comics i read the spider-man uh i mean i watched the spider-man anime show i watched all three Tobey Maguire movies i watched two andrew garfield movies and i watched uh every single marvel movie that contains spider-man it's still a lot of damn content it's so freaking 
much of Spider-Man, but I love it. Um, but yeah, so obviously I'm passionate about Spider-Man and I can't wait to talk about it and deep dive into it. Could be by myself, could be a discussion. Um, I also want to talk about Matrix Resurrections. Um, I've seen that once all the way through. I'm starting on a second watch through of it. Just want to make sure before I say my piece on it. Um, and I'm going to go see Macbeth literally in about an hour with Denzel Washington. So I'm really excited about seeing that movie. I've been wanting to see it since I saw the trailer. And it comes out in Apple on the 14th or 17th of January. So check that out too. Um, if you don't want to go to the theater at this time. Because I definitely understand. Um, but yeah. So thank you for listening again. And tune in next time.